0: your Bible tonight, you'll want to turn to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, the praises of God around the throne move out in stages in the same way we saw last week he's surrounded by these widening uh, concentric circles of glory, the praise moves from contemplation of who God is in himself to his work of creation to what is the summit tonight of His worthiness in chapter 5, the work of redemption accomplished by the Lamb. This gives us the opportunity to consider why we exist in the first place, why we are even here, why there's something instead of nothing. And we have to wonder sometimes where history is going, how are we ever going to get out of the mess that we've made and keep making. John was well aware of the problems that he and the church were facing in the first century, the persecutions, the threats. That's why his reaction tonight in chapter 5 to the fact that no one initially can open this scroll is so understandable. All creation is groaning and weeping and waiting under the curse of sin and death. And if there isn't a plan, if there isn't a direction here um, or a sovereign who can drive history to its consummation, and a victor who can accomplish what's necessary for it all to go according to that plan, all there is to do is weep, for we're without any hope. But in Revelation 5, we find our answer to all these questions, and to this great dilemma for humankind. And the result of the answer, the reason for which God created the world, is pure, unbroken, exuberant worship. Beloved, the ultimate goal of learning theology is not knowledge, it's worship. J.I. Packer said this, any theology that does not lead to doxology, to worship, eventually becomes idolatry. God and the Lamb are glorified in Revelation 5 because they've begun to exercise their sovereign authority over creation already through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which results in the inauguration and eventually the consummation of judgment and redemption. The triumph of Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection is the ground and the goal of all worship. It is the means by which God has made Jesus Lord over all human history, and it is the comfort of our hearts and the source of all our hope. Let's pray. And we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for your revelation period and this revelation of your son, Jesus Christ for your embattled church in this world. So God, turn our eyes and ears to heaven tonight to hear from another world what is true and what is real as we live in this one. May praise be to you, our God. Help me to preach for this purpose. Help us to listen and understand and believe for this purpose, as well as our hope and our joy and the eventual end of all our weeping. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me read chapter 5 all at once. As beautiful as chapter 4. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We've looked at this before in Revelation. This is the glory and perfection of God's one Holy Spirit. In verse 7, And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll... be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The scene of worship we saw in Revelation 4 is continuing here. There's been no interruption to it, but at this point, John sees, as he looks, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals in the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne in verse 1. This scroll is is God's purpose for human history. It contains the content, the direction, and the means by which God is going to accomplish it. Part of the reason we know that's what's in the scroll is by noting John's reaction later to the fact that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it. In other words, it would be catastrophic if the contents of this scroll remain unknown. So it isn't just details. Whatever's in the scroll brings about weeping and distress and sorrow and catastrophe if it can't be opened. Some scholars say this was a normal scroll, usually a piece of parchment written on front and back, rolled up, sealed with seven seals. Others say it was a codex, more like a book. But the nature is much less important than its contents, which, as we can clearly see, is basically the rest of the book of Revelation. God's plan for the end of time and for the cosmos. Look at 2 through 4 again. And I saw a mighty angel, note that, proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is amazing. Think of the scene we saw described in chapter 4. Not even one of those mighty four living creatures could open this scroll, there was none among the millions of angelic beings that were strong enough to open it. Not one of the 24 elders could open it. Not even what John described as a mighty angel in verse 2 was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And this angel, remember this, this angel hasn't sinned, right? This is not a sinful angel. This is a perfect angel. Not one of the 24 elders could open it. None of these beings obviously participated in Satan's rebellion. So surely they're worthy to open the scroll, but they're not. And why? And apparently this search throughout the whole heavens and the earth and under the earth was carried out, and still no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Is no one capable? Is no one worthy enough to bring history to its appointed end? What if there is no one who can know, much less carry out God's will, For all creation. That's what's at stake in this scroll. Look at 5 and 6 again. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this elder says, Behold the lion. Then in verse 6, John looks, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So there is one, we find, who can open the scroll. But when John sees him, it is not what John expected. He beholds the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But when he looks, he sees a lamb. And then he realizes in verse 6, these are the same person. When Jacob, that is, Israel bestowed his final blessing on his sons. He compared Judah, his son, remember, to a lion. Uh, He said that a perpetual dynasty was going to come from Judah's line. That's Genesis 49, 8 through 12. When the prophet Samuel later on anointed David from the line of Judah as the king in the place of the Benjamite Saul, the prophecy is being set in motion. The exile that came to Babylon would make it seem like The dynasty had been cut off, but then in Isaiah chapter 11, that prophet saw a new shoot springing up from the root and stump of David's dynasty. And of course, these promises finally reached their fulfillment in Jesus, the anointed king, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So surely this lion of the tribe of Judah, this fierce lion, is able to open the scroll. But here's the thing, this lion is also a lamb in verse 6, and he's standing as though he had been slain. The word is literally slaughtered. So he's standing there with his throat cut, basically. And remember, a mighty and sinless angel couldn't open the scroll. None of the four living creatures could. No apostle, no elder, no philosopher, no scientist or soldier could open this scroll. Why then is the lion who is the lamb worthy to do it? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, beloved, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That is why he and only he is worthy. But beloved, notice what John is telling us here. The lamb and the lion conquered by dying, by being slain. That's how he appears to John. But not just because he died. It's not dying that makes one worthy. Everybody dies. It's who was dying. The slain lamb is standing in verse 6. Standing. Slain and standing. The death of Jesus, we'll read in verse 9, ransomed people. It was efficacious, you might say. And not only ransomed and redeemed a people, but then was so powerful... It constituted these people to be a kingdom. Well, what is so worthy, so effective about his death? Because notice that. It's very important. The, lamb, the slain lamb is not lying on the ground. He's not slumped over like he's dead. He's standing. The point being, he's alive. He defeated death. That's how Jesus introduced himself in chapter 1. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. God raised this lamb from the dead... He conquered by his death because his perfectly obedient life was offered up to God as a sufficient sacrifice to ransom the sinners. God means to save. His death was different. It was so effective. It takes rebels and sinners and fallen created ones and makes them kings in the presence of God. And we asked last week, we asked it again. What kind of God makes kings out of his enemies? This God. This God. Beloved, the death of Jesus Christ is the means by which God will be victorious over sin and death and hell and all human history. All of it. But notice here, I've mentioned his resurrection. The text here does not. Isn't that interesting? Isn't he risen? Shouldn't he be standing as though he's risen? He's standing slain. The focus here then, it's not denying the resurrection or something, it's that the focus here is on how this one became worthy to open the scroll. It was by dying, by death. Beloved, why can't we, many of us, American Christians, get this through our heads? That until Jesus Christ returns in power and glory, victory will not be achieved by the sword, by force, by the majority. It will be achieved by sacrifice. That's how our Lord has conquered to the extent that it has made him worthy to open the scroll, to carry out God's will for creation. That came by the lamb dying. By the lion becoming the lamb who was slaughtered. He conquers through the cross, beloved. So the power we want to change people's lives, to turn people to God, but also to literally order human history to its God-appointed end comes from a crucified lamb who we know literally rose again from the dead. We think the way to conquer is by winning. We normally think of conquering as defeating others by force, by outnumbering others. Or maybe even killing others if we have to. Jesus won this. All of this. And sovereignly brings God's will for the world to pass by dying for them. By laying down His life for them. So, the church is not called to go out and slaughter or defeat or overpower those who won't commit to Jesus or try to force them to live the right way or demand that society at large submit to biblical values, we are called to sacrifice our lives to show how worthy is the Lamb. Do we understand this? Is that our tone? What are the implications of the Lamb standing as though slain for the church in the world? Is it the way of Jesus to conquer by force and by victory as we understand it? God's Lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which show just how worthy He is. He's perfect to receive the praises that meet His appearance here. These are the visual equivalent of the title Almighty. It's been ascribed to the Lord God in eight and in eight. They show the Lamb's omniscience, His knowledge of everything, as well as the mode of His presence among His embattled churches, right? This is who's standing among us since these eyes symbolize the perfect Holy Spirit of God. The Lamb has all power and all knowledge, extending to the farthest corners of the earth, beloved. Jesus Christ is the center of all human history. That's what we're finding out is it's Him that's worthy to open the scroll. Not only were all things made through him, but for him in Colossians 1 15 to 20. This passage reveals why creation exists, why you and I exist. It is all so that we would adore and stand in awe of the beauty and the majesty of the lion and the lamb and his victory over sin and death and hell and history. He's done it. It's done. Which means you and I, we don't have to win anything, we don't have to win. Anything. We don't have to take over anything for God's purposes and His will for the world to be carried out. Do you understand the implications of such a thing? He's already overcome the world. This is happening right now. you realize the danger of pushing all this into the future as though it's not happening right now? That changes the whole tone and purpose of the church We need to stand in awe of the Lion who is the Lamb that was slain. We don't need to try to make anything remain. Jesus has left Himself a witness. We are here for this moment, for the sake of souls on the earth, right now. That's what we're doing here. We are not called to protect the future. That's in the hands of the Lion and the Lamb. You and I are called for this moment to rescue those that are perishing. That's why the Lamb is standing, who is also the Lion, as though slain, to remind the church who is her Lord and Savior, and also who is the King of all creation. It is the church's proclamation of His already sure and certain victory over the world that God now brings about His purposes. We aren't going to lose anything, beloved. Stop selling God short in your mind and thinking that he's losing because evil is increasing or because America is going off the rails. This is the plan of the Sovereign One. Does it look like he's lacking control or sight or knowledge of what's going on? Of course he isn't. The majesty of the church's champion is so great that he approaches the enthroned one in verse 7 and takes the scroll from his hand. And this message is so wonderful and so glorious that there's one that can do this. It's such great news that singing breaks out. More loud, exuberant, heavenly worship. Look with me again at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice or the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. What did this sound like? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Everything. Everything worthwhile. The Lamb is worthy to receive all of it. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Think about that. Every creature. Earthworms. Oxen. Right? Beloved, right? Every creature. This is unbelievable. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Again, parenthetically, real quick, if you have a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door, you take them to Revelation 5. If he's just the brother of the devil or just another angel, why is he being worshipped alongside the one who is seated on the throne? Start there, and they'll probably leave. It'd be better if they'd stay and listen to the Gospel, but once they know... Anyway. And the four living creatures said in verse 14, Amen. And the elders fell down. Again, remember, and worship. The supreme worthiness of the Lamb draws out all... It draws out verbal, physical expressions of praise to the glorious victor from those beings who serve in God's presence day and night that we were first introduced to in chapter 4. And besides their harps, now we know the elders are all holding a harp in one hand and a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll be able to talk more about this in the coming weeks. In Revelation, these are specifically the prayers of those martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout the age of the church before his return. And these prayers will play a crucial role in the judgments this Lamb will pour out on his enemies. It's in response to the cries of these martyrs for justice that the Lamb will pour out his judgment on his enemies in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. It's in response to the lament of these suffering saints in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5 that he'll send fiery vengeance on earth, sea, rivers, and sky in 8, 6 through 12. The new song being sung in verse 9 and following celebrates the fact that the slain lamb, as the slain lamb, has defeated the powers of evil. By dying, he has redeemed men and women and ransomed them by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we've already been told back in chapter 1 that he's made these redeemed ones a kingdom and priests. But he repeats it here in verse 10. This is already accomplished. There is an already not yet dimension to our faith that God wants us to be aware of and live in. This has already been accomplished. In the spiritual sense, we are already reigning because the Lamb has already been slain. What was necessary to place Him on the throne has happened. Right? This is very important for us to accept, to push, again, to push the reigning of Jesus out into the future is to underestimate what the Lion and Lamb accomplished already just by dying. Just by being slain, all of this has been affected. So, of course it affects our hearts now to not realize Jesus has already been victorious. And we're only here for proclamation, not to take over. Jesus didn't start the war. Jesus finished the war. So it's not like he started something that now you and I take over and are fighting. Jesus finished it. We're here as proclaimers, not as pioneer settlers, beloved. Our home isn't here. We don't need this world. We don't need to claim it or reclaim it. Jesus owns it. If the church doesn't take on this truth from the Word of God, its mission will be skewed by this idea that we somehow help bring about this reign if we conquer enough territory. No, they were singing this over 2,000 years ago. They're still singing it now. We don't have to fight. Right? We don't have to fight. We serve and love and die if need be. As Jesus did, the elders say He has made us, the church, a kingdom of priests, His redeemed ones. And beloved, let's take a minute here. Note the desire of God for creation that is revealed to us here. And I want us to consider the sin of racism. It's not, here's what the media has done and other things. It's made the idea of race so important and so exalted in our society that we get tired of it. And it gets it, it it there are even some ways in which it becomes threatening. We've we've seen some of that in our culture in the last year or two, right? The way that race can be wielded as a weapon by both sides. It's always been by all the different sides. But what the media can do is is oversaturate us with something so that we forget that God is the possessor of all truth. The sin of racism isn't merely a social issue. It's a blood of Jesus Christ issue. It's clear in God's word that his predestined and ordained plan of Jesus is to capture and to take to himself, beloved, a multi-ethnic bride. That's what this is. There are still people in the church that have a problem with interracial marriage. Then they have a problem with Jesus and his church. God's aim is not to have a redeemed people from one tribe, or two, or even ten or twenty, but from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. We know that he means something different than the continents here, because the gospel is on every continent. And Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Which means our understanding of nations has to be ethno-linguistic, not created by borders, right? So, Jesus means to capture people from uh, Americans, yes, but also a member, at least one member of that tribe in Brazil, somewhere in the Amazon, that speaks their own language. Yes, them too. There will be representatives of every ethno-linguistic group on the planet, in heaven, gathered around the Lamb. That's the Bride of Christ. So ethnic diversity, don't let the world make you think. Don't let the world make you roll your eyes at that. Their idea for it is selfish and ridiculous, and it's to be wielded as a weapon, and it's ridiculous. God's idea of it is related to the worthiness of His Lamb and the very reason for which His Lamb was slain. So don't let the world pull you into being upset about something that is a priority to your Lord. Don't let their misinterpretation and misapplication and misuse of it change our view of God's truth. Don't let that happen. All believers are a kingdom of priests and all believers will rule and reign together as one body and one kingdom. So just so we're clear, we need to love what God loves and we need to hate what God hates. And God hates sin and racism is blasphemy blasphemy if we harbor feelings of distaste or disdain or hatred or animosity even if it's deep down on the inside and nobody knows it towards this ethnicity or that ethnicity verses 9 and 10 are letting us know that we're blaspheming the majesty of the creator who shaped everyone in his image racism is denouncing the redemptive work of Jesus Christ it is despising the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is denigrating and denying his purpose in sending his son to create one race, his church, from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. We need to know when these feelings exist inside of us that they are sinful. They're counter God's purpose for creation. We're blaspheming God. We're blaspheming His purpose for the world. So don't let those feelings fester. Again, don't let the way of the world embitter us to those whom our Lord Jesus died to have as His bride. Sins like racism, there are certain sins that are unique and that racism is one of them. It shows just how much people really hate God just how much animosity we really have towards our Creator for the way He's decided to do things, for the way He's made this world, for His redemptive purposes we find, beloved. The importance of what they're singing and proclaiming is obvious in the text, not only by its position in the center of it, if you look at it, but also by its length. New songs were composed throughout the history of salvation in God's Word. Uh, Every time a new event would happen where God was uh, rescuing his people. Exodus 15, of course, Isaiah 42, Psalm 96. Um, the new song the living creatures and the elders are singing, however, makes any previous one pale in comparison. In this redemption, in this exodus, if, if, if you will, the multitude that's being purchased by the Lamb doesn't just come from one nation. It comes from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Every ethne on planet Earth. That's the word for nation. That's why I say ethno-linguistic people. That's what ethne-nation means. But to this massive international assembly, which is what this is, the Lamb gives titles that had previously been reserved for national Israel in redemptive history and exclusively for them. And now they're applied literally to the church. So the church is the bride of Christ, yes. And by virtue of being in Christ... The true Israel. One plan, one promise, one people. Just like Paul says, unless we want to play word games with the text and say one doesn't mean one, it means two and all of this. What Jesus accomplished at the cross is on the line in that discussion, beloved. That's why it matters. That's why it's a big deal to me. Right? When we talk about the people of God, it's a discussion on what Jesus did or did not accomplish on the cross. That's why it matters. And this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In verse 11, this redemption accomplished and applied results in an absolute waterfall of praise and exaltation that just engulfs all of heaven. And so now joining the praises of the four living creatures and the 24 elders are many angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, just to have fun, all right? a myriad is 10,000. 10,000 times 10,000 equals 100 million. And we have myriads and myriads here. The point is not an actual count, although that would be really fun. The point is that there are millions upon millions upon millions of angels praising the Lamb because He is worthy. If you've ever been to a football game, you know how loud 30,000, 50,000 105,000 in that glorious stadium in Columbus, filled with people, right? But you know how loud that can be. You know how exalting that sound can be. Human ears have never scratched the surface of what it sounds like up there. Mill- if it's up there, right? Millions upon millions upon millions Hundreds of millions. What does that even look like? They're praising the Lamb because He's worthy. He alone is worthy to open the scrolls, which means He alone is worthy to accomplish and carry out God's will for creation. This, The fact that He can open this lets us know that what is told in the rest of this book is what is going to happen. So John truly doesn't have to weep anymore. It's not just stop crying. No, stop weeping. God will have His way. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. Because no matter what it looks like down here, this is what it looks like up there. And up there controls down here. No wonder heaven explodes in worship for Jesus Christ. And notice finally in verse 13 that all creation, all creatures shout with all that they have. We see that here in the second part of 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Why is Jesus so worthy of worship and praise, beloved? The lamb standing as though, as though slain, who is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. But lions eat lambs. That's how they interact. So why this juxtaposition, right? There, there's a point to the contrasting image of a lion and a lamb meeting in only one worthy person. There's meaning in that that Jesus is both of those things, lion and lamb. The lion who possesses all strength and power in ordering and directing the universe is the lamb who humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross and was led to the slaughter so that you and I might live. That all is accomplished by the same Worthy one. The four living creatures who sing day and night are the very same ones who are going to call forth the first four seals in chapter six. Angels who are commissioned from the throne of Christ are the ones who blow the seven individual trumpets of wrath that will unleash judgment on believers. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he roars. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. Holy and righteous. And He is the Lamb. Gracious and merciful who ransoms sinners by His blood. If, if, if we can't get our mind around both of those, that both of these things exist completely in one Jesus, we're going to struggle with revelation. Jesus is both of these things. If we miss these two images that meet in Christ, we miss the gospel. We miss what it means that we are the church. And why Jesus has sent us into this world, beloved. He is not only holy and pure, he is gracious and kind, which means Jesus is unlike anybody you've ever met on the earth. The lion who will one day return in wrath, literally and physically, subjected himself to the fullest expression of God's wrath, as the slain lamb, so that you and I, might know only God's blessing. This is Jesus for us, beloved. And all heaven and all creation exist by God's design to worship the one who is both lion and lamb so that God himself may finally be all in all. More than anything else in Revelation, anything else, beloved, for all its detail and mystery and beauty, don't miss this most important of things the lamb who was slain is worthy beloved of everything the triumph of Jesus Christ through his death is the ground and goal of all worship and the means by which God has made him Lord over all human history and the means by which he comforts our hearts with hope beloved Weep no more. Weep no more as though the world won't be brought to its end by Jesus or that your life won't end in His arms. Don't worry about that not happening. As you lose here, don't lose sight of Him. When your soul is worn out, when your mind is overwhelmed, When you literally feel like a failure, like you aren't going to make it, like you're totally alone, look to heaven. See how important it is to be heavenly minded? Look there. Look there. They're singing the song of your redemption and your victory there. Look to Christ. See, this is real. There are two ways on earth you can behold majesty, really, if we we are defining majesty a certain way. You can see things in nature, which they are majestic. I mean, there are so many incredibly majestic things that just exist in nature. You you can worship on a drive through the state of West Virginia, just especially in the fall. This, This is beautiful here. Right? And God just painted it with the word of his mouth, just so there's there's that you can look at man, I guess there's you know well, the second one they're all the same there's there's man made wonder, and look now, how do you behold otherworldly majesty? You go to the movies, and the movies can create anything they want to i mean it's it's amazing how they can go to places on earth and film it in such a way that it looks like a planet that exists. You know, light years in the future. I mean, it's 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 amazing what you can behold on a screen, but it's all fake. It's all synthetic majesty created on somebody's laptop or desktop, or if they're really good, it's a miniature they've created that they put on film and it looks real. But that's that's the only. Those are the only ways we can bump up against majesty, right? Because we think that's what it is. We will stand in awe of things we have made with our own hands, and and sometimes rightfully so, right? I'm not denying that, that the ability, the knowledge, the wonder, the skill in that. I'm not making light of that at all. I'm just saying it's all, it's all contrived. It all, no matter how great it is, it's limited by what we can imagine and what we can accomplish. So our majesty, even when it's real, is always going to be. It's always going to have a ceiling on it, right? Once the movie's over, it's gone. Those worlds don't even exist anymore. They're they're nowhere to be found but on a computer. And that's amazing sometimes, but it isn't this. It isn't this. This isn't some unrealistic or distant ethereal dream John had. John didn't make it up because he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. There's nothing more real and more sure than this. And this is why you and I exist. This is the point of human history. To sing these praises to the Lamb. Who accomplished all of it. And became worthy to open the scroll in God's design. By dying. So, do you realize what God can do in death? In the most final thing that can happen to us. God is just getting started with glory. And for that reason, that our personal and corporate salvation is wrapped up in God's whole design for the world, through His Son, who is the Lion and the Lamb, we can be sure that we will one day join this chorus in person. To enjoy and celebrate who God is for us in Christ forever is why everything exists and everything was created. That's been the flow from four to five. I wonder if we'll be creating new songs in that day. But God has bigger and better things for you and I, beloved. Did you know that? God has bigger and better things for you and I and what we can imagine in this world. It's not that our weeping isn't real. It's not that John wants us to pretend that the world and our lives aren't broken. It's That he wants us to know it isn't permanent. It's not going to feel like this forever. Do we realize this? It's not going to be like this forever. This is not our only reality. And it isn't that John is out of touch with reality. It's that John wants us to see something even more real than this the deepest reality. And the point of that is for you and I to sing and to say worthy is the Lamb who was slain.